Good morning, church. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Today is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is an echo of the greatest, most important event in human history, namely when a man rose himself from the dead. Looking forward to celebrating that together with you next week. I want to say one thing before I launch. Uh, I spent Friday uh, evening with the guys up at Manfest, and uh, I just want you to know it was a, it was a tremendous encouragement. Uh, my thanks to, to Steve for just, just being so gracious and hospitable to the men and uh, opening that place up not only to this church body a, a, at times, but also to, to many others. And so um, Steve heart, Steve's heart is to uh, encourage others and to bring refreshment and, and to, to be a good steward of what he has and to bless people with it. So I'm grateful to Steve for your great generosity. And also to, to Robert. Um, uh, Robert uh, worked so hard to serve all the men and, and to uh, basically, it just seemed like he wouldn't let anyone do anything. He wanted to serve everybody and be a blessing to them. And so I'm so uh, grateful to him. Our time around the campfire, uh, at least for me on Friday night, was a, was a sweet time of being in God's word and thinking about what it means that Christ is the true vine and what it means to abide in him and, and that Christianity is not merely difficult, it is impossible and that we have no choice. We have one card to play in the Christian life, and that is to abide in Christ moment by moment, second by second. So I'm grateful for that. So next year, let's do it again. Well, I want to begin by saying something that's going to sound controversial, maybe, and counterintuitive, but nevertheless, here goes nothing. A godly man is a violent man. <laughs> you heard me right. A godly man is a violent man. In fact, I'll push it even a little further and say that the more violent a man is, the more godly he becomes. Now, obviously, for any of this to be true, it, it, it all depends on who or what that man is violent against. Agreed? And if the object of his violence is the very sin that lurks in his very own heart, then that is completely true. A man of godliness is a man of violence. The more violent one is with the sin in their own heart, the more godly and Christ-exalting they become. And just to make it a little more personal to you, the more vicious and violent you are with the sin in your own souls, the more godly you become and the more your life puts Christ on display. You see, when it comes to warfare against sin in the Christian life, the more savage you can be, the more sanctified you will become. And I just want you to know, I'll just be really honest with you here, most Christians are not prepared for this. Not even close, not by a long shot. I'm not exactly sure what people's expectations are when they sign on the dotted line, as it were, to become a Christian, but when they do, they are not prepared. They do not, they have no idea that what they are signing up for is a fight to the death. And not with some enemy who's kind of hiding out there somewhere, not with some image on a plasma screen. Not even first and foremost or primarily with Satan and his minions, but what it is, is a fight to the death, even within the sin that lurks, even within your very own hearts. J.C. Ryle put it like this. 
He says, a true Christian is one who not only has peace of conscience, but war within. A holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling, these are spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. Do you see? It's true. A godly person is a violent person. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because in a very real sense, the elders of a local church should be the most violent people on the face of the planet. In fact, I'll put it like this. The Christ-exalting effectiveness of a local church or the Christ-defaming failure of a local church is profoundly dependent upon how violent the elders of that local church are with the very sin in their souls because elder health is inseparably and directly connected to church health. And see, that's just the thing. The reason why the letter to Titus is in your Bibles, the reason why Paul stuck it in an envelope, licked it, sealed it, sent it to Titus on the island of Crete is because what it is, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, just like I say every Sunday, whether planning a new church, whether resurrecting a dead church, whether nursing a sickly church back to health, Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. And, and Paul's got loads, loads of things that he says a church has to be to be a healthy church. But the first thing on the list he says that you need are leaders. And Paul calls them elders. And to be an elder, you have to be qualified. And in chapter 1, Paul gives Titus 15 qualifications divided up into three categories that Paul says a man has to be to be an elder. And this morning, we get to the second of those categories that an elder needs to be blameless. Namely, an elder is blameless because of the sins he puts to death. And so this morning, what we're going to see are five sins. Five targets that not just elders, but everyone needs to put to death with holy violence. Because again, a godly elder is a violent elder. And yet you need to know something here. Um, the greatest mistake you could make this morning would be to think that, okay, because this is an elders-only passage, that it has elders-only implications and elders-only relevance. That's, that's the worst you, mistake you could make because this text that you're about to see has profound relevance for every single one of your lives. Do you know why? Because the question, what do elder qualifications have to do with me if I'm never going to be an elder, is kind of like asking, what does it matter if the pilot flying my plane is drunk or not if I'm never going to be a pilot? See how crazy the question is? You see... The ones in whose hands you place the care of your very soul, which is what elders do, had better be spiritually qualified to do so. In other words, they do what they do so that you will do what they do because as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. So here we go. The inspired resume of biblical elders. Here's where we're going. I want you to see from our text the second category 
There's three categories. I want you to see the second category in which elders must be blameless if a church is going to be a church that changes the world. That's where we're going. The second of three categories that elders must, a second category in which elders must be blameless if a church is going to be a church that changes the world. And category number two, that second category is this. Listen very carefully. An elder is blameless because of the sins he puts to death. An elder is blameless because of the sins he puts to death. And in verse 7, which is we're going to spend all of our time here this morning, Paul identifies five targets, five terrorists of sins, five sins that an elder and everybody else must put to death with holy violence. That's where we're headed. The second category contains five targets of sin to put to death. Those five targets, that's where we're going. And Paul, as you know, begins in verse 5. Look what he says. He says, For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? In order that you should set in order the things which remain, and you should appoint elders in every city or church, just as I commanded you. Well, that sounds really great, but who exactly is qualified to be an elder? Look at verse 6. If any man is blameless. Well, that sounds great too, but what exactly does it look like to be blameless? He goes on. He is the husband of one wife. He has faithful, or some of your versions say, believing children not accused of debauchery or rebellion. For it is necessary, the overseer, to be blameless as the steward of God. And here it is, verse 7, the five targets to put to death. He must not be arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not quarrelsome, and last but not least, he must not be greedy for dishonest gain. There they are. The five targets elders must put to death with holy violence. And we're going to walk through each one of these one at a time. Target number one, here we go. An elder must not be arrogant. An elder must not be arrogant. Now, of course, you, you notice in the text, Paul doesn't exactly explain why he put arrogance first on the list. But we, we can guess why he did. We can guess why he did. Not necessarily because arrogance is worse than other sins necessarily, but probably for leadership type guys who are called to lead other people, this is probably the easiest sin to fall into, speaking for a friend. And yet the question is, why is this on the list? Why must a pastor elder not be arrogant? And the answers to that question are legion and obvious, right? You see, an arrogant elder, the reason why this is on the list is because an arrogant elder is an overbearing elder. An arrogant elder is harsh, he's abrasive, he's heavy-handed, he's hypercritical. An arrogant elder is an argumentative elder. He's independent, self-willed, a terrible listener, unsympathetic. He wants independent autonomy to do what he pleases with zero accountability. He's easily angered, extremely defensive. He beats and bruises the sheep. He's blind to his own sin. He's slow to confess his faults. He assumes the worst about others, and he assumes the best about himself. In the end, an arrogant elder is a glory thief. 
He wants the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. In fact, you could put it this way, an arrogant elder is an anti-John the Baptist. He must become great, even if it means that Christ must become little. And yet the question is, elders, future elders, and everybody else, do you see any of those symptoms of arrogance in your life? In fact, I think really the most important question is, um, have you ever considered what the root of arrogance is? What is the root of arrogance? I mean, the symptoms are easy enough to identify, right? But if you reach your hand down into the grimy drain of the human heart and you find what it is that's causing the arrogance, what kind of slimy mass do you think you'd find? And this brings me to what I call the Christ-defaming root of arrogance. Each one of these targets are going to have a Christ-defaming root and a Christ-exalting cure. Every one of these, I'm going to have that, so be on the listen for those. The question is, what is the Christ-defaming root of arrogance? Well, there's a long answer (laughs) and a short answer. The long answer is, to be arrogant is literally to be insane. It's spiritual insanity. I mean, this is a psychosis of the soul. To be arrogant means that you are off the medication of grace and you have drifted into the devil's disease of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. If you are proud and arrogant, then you have literally lost your grip on reality. Do do you feel that? Arrogance means you have lost your grip on reality. And what is reality? You are created. He is the creator. You are temporal. He is eternal. You are unclean. He is the Holy One. Reality means that at one time in our lives, we were closer to hell than the very chairs on which we are sitting. Reality is that we were born blind, dead, damned, and helpless. And had God not chosen us in eternity past, had he not awakened us by sovereign grace, we would have never believed and been saved. That is reality. That's the truth. The short answer is, if we are arrogant, then that means that we have forgotten two earth-shattering realities. If we are arrogant, number one, we have forgotten the supremacy of God. And number two, if we are arrogant, we have forgotten the sovereign grace of God. And I just want you to know that the supremacy of God and the sovereign grace of God, I just want you to know those are actually the cure to arrogance. In other words, if, if you are If you are arrogant and you would like to be no longer, what do you do? What's the cure to being proud and arrogant? The the answer to being proud and arrogant is to remember the supremacy of God. The, The cure to being proud and arrogant is to remember the sovereign grace of God. Because have you not noticed that your attempts to be humble oftentimes malfunction and backfire? You're, you work so hard to be humble, and then before you know it, you're really angry and at other people because they're, they're not as humble as you? Wait, what? H- how does that work? <laughs> you see, to kill a snake, you cut off its head. 
and to kill the serpent of arrogance, you must also cut off its head. How? First, you force yourself to remember the matchless supremacy of the God who never had a beginning. Because it's easy. It's easy. It's easy to exalt yourself when you compare yourself to other created beings. But when you compare yourself to the God who spoke galaxies into existence, who numbers the stars, who became a man, who calmed the sea with his voice, who rose himself from the dead, who rules the universe by the word of his power, and who is coming to establish his kingdom. When you compare yourself to him, well, let's just say there's no room anymore for the supremacy of the self. You see, you can't have a high view of God that treasures him as supreme and be self-exalting at the same time. One of them must go. But second, if you want to kill pride and arrogance in your life, you have to remember the sovereign grace of God. See, nothing deflates an arrogant soul faster than when you remember the sovereign grace of God that saved you from eternal woe and despair. You see, when you remember that every aspect of your salvation is owing entirely to God's sovereign initiative and choice, when you remember the great lengths to which God went to save you from destruction, that had God not chosen you in eternity past, had he not awakened you by sovereign grace, would you remember that the only contribution you had to your own salvation were the sins that needed to be forgiven? Then, then we can be humble. Then we can be humble. Why? Because when we remember those things, then it becomes almost impossible to feel even a millimeter of superiority over another human being again. That's target number one. An an elder must not be arrogant, which brings us to target number two. An elder must not be angry. An elder must not be angry. And you can see it in the text in verse seven. Paul says that an elder must not be arrogant and following very closely right on the heels of that is Paul says, notice what he says, an elder must not be angry. Literally, quick, tempered, short-fused, explode on impact. This is someone who's easily angered, easily provoked, easily irritated, easily enraged. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you think about the logic of the list, it makes perfect sense that anger follows immediately after arrogance. Paul did that on purpose, you know. This isn't some sort of like random laundry list off the top of his head, just kind of making stuff up. Oh, let's see, what else should go on there? No, no, there's, there's a real order and a progression to the list. You see, he put them right next to one another. Get this now, because arrogant people are easily angered people. You see, when you smell the smoke of arrogance in your life, the flames of anger are not far behind. And it makes sense, doesn't it, why Paul put anger on the list? Why elders shouldn't be active volcanoes of anger, always about to blow it? It makes perfect sense because being quick-tempered is just so godless, isn't it? I mean, it's the exact opposite of who God has revealed himself to be. I mean, how many times do we read in the Old Testament that Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness? 
How many times do we read that he is patient and his kindness leads you to repentance? Does it hit us with great force and power that God endured decade after decade after decade, century after century of the obstinance of the people of Israel, warning, issuing warning shot after warning shot after warning shot until finally, after centuries, pulled the trigger and brought them into exile. And it makes total sense that this qualification is on the list because anger is the gateway sin that leads to other more destructive sins, doesn't it? Anger, as you know, it makes marriages cold and distant. Anger in local churches creates division. It it creates a culture of fear. It it breeds, it makes us fakey and hypocritical. It makes us unwilling to be vulnerable It breeds suspicion and distrust. It it leads to violence. It it causes bitterness. It kills evangelism. It pollutes fellowship. It hinders prayer. It destroys hospitality. It devastates families. And in the end, it cripples entire churches and makes them powerless for the Great Commission. Oh, the toxic power of anger unrestrained. And yet the question is, and I I think we probably all could define anger if we had to, but the real question is, do we know the Christ-defaming root of anger? In other words, when when you crawl around in the crawl space of the human heart, shine the flashlight on the dingy corners of the human heart, what do you think you'd find as the root of anger? Well, believe it or not, there are three roots of anger, three possible things in our hearts that lead us to be angry. Root number one, the root of anger is a fundamental belief that you deserve better than what you're getting. In other words, anger is oftentimes rooted in our expectations of what we think we deserve that we are entitled to something different or better than what we're getting in that moment. Now, I'm not saying that people just have a right to do whatever they want to you and you just have to take it. I'm just saying that at our worst, anger is rooted in an overinflated view of self-importance, sitting on our makeshift thrones, ruling our claustrophobic kingdoms of one and punishing anyone who dares to violate the laws of our claustrophobic little kingdom. Make no mistake, that is the root of sinful anger. So the question is, what do we do about that? I mean, it's it's easy to call it for what it is, but what is the cure? What is the Christ-exalting cure to sinful anger? And harsh though it may sound at first, the cure to anger is to remember that the only thing we really, truly actually deserve and the only thing to which we are truly entitled is eternal wrath in hell itself. That's it. That's that's the cure. At the end of the day, do we deserve better than that? At the end of the day, are we entitled to something better than that? 
You see, we douse the flames of anger when we remember, I am not even kidding, that even at this moment, there is a vacancy in hell that we should be occupying even at this very moment. And yet the only reason why we're not there now is because the Lamb of God endured that wrath in our place. Root number two. The root of sinful anger is always, always, always a reaction of idolatry. It's a reaction of idolatry. In other words, anger is a profoundly accurate barometer of the soul that indicates the presence of idols lurking in the heart. You see, anger is a defense mechanism designed to protect the things that are most precious to you. Let's put it this way. The, the pit bull of wrath and the guard dog of anger, they only strike and they only bite and they only lash out when something or someone threatens the things in the heart that are most precious to you. Which means the cure then, the Christ-exalting cure for anger is to remember one great earth-shattering reality, namely, that our idols will never, ever satisfy our souls. That's what we have to remember. Our idols will never, ever satisfy our souls. The cure is to remember that all of the fulfillment that we are hoping to find in our idols can only actually be found in Jesus Christ alone. I mean, isn't this exactly what Paul put his finger on in Philippians 3, 7, and 8? But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Rather also, I count all things to be loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, the way to be liberated from the idols that seem so captivating and irresistible is to see Jesus Christ for the infinitely valuable treasure that he is. Because when you see him for the treasure that he is, you kill the idols that reign in the heart. And when you do that, you crucify the anger that seeks to protect them. Root number three. The root of sinful anger, get this now, is a fundamental disbelief and distrust in the sovereignty of God. It's true. When we are angry, it's because we do not believe and we do not trust the sovereignty of God to bring every single moment in our lives, into our lives, even the very situations in which we are tempted to be angry. See, you, you have to understand that, that all the situations that tempt you to be angry, those are not in your life by accident, not by a long shot. In Christ, even those situations are a gift. Those situations are a gift of God to you. What you have to remember, what you must never forget, is that God's primary goal for you as a Christian is not to change your circumstances so that you can be happy, but to change you through your circumstances so that you will be happy in Him. To put it another way, everything in your life is a design designed to transform you into the image of the most glorious and beautiful person in the universe, namely, Jesus Christ. And when you get that, 
you will smother the flames of sinful anger. And so, elders, future elders, and everybody else, how are you doing with anger? How are you doing? Because I just want you to know that whatever it is lurking beneath that's causing the anger in Christ and in Christ alone, there is hope for you. Which brings us to target number three. An elder must not be addicted. An elder must not be addicted. And I realize that addicted is a loaded term. But what I mean by addicted, get this now, what I mean by addicted is willingly enslaved. I mean super selfish and obsessed with your own appetites and cravings to the extent that we don't give a rip about anyone. Because that's what the Bible says an addiction is. Even though it doesn't use that term, it uses willing slavery. That's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to in verse 7 when he says that an elder must not be a drunkard. You see that on the list? An elder must not be a drunkard. Literally, the Greek term means one who lingers long by wine. The picture, you can just see it, is, is of one who never leaves the bar. One who always has a bottle of booze within his reach. The term describes a a drunk who is excessively and willingly mastered and preoccupied by alcohol. And yet we need to be, let's be absolutely clear here. We need to be absolutely clear so that we don't breed any sort of weird subculture things. We, we, We need to know that alcohol in and of itself is not inherently sinful or evil. Agreed? In fact, it's very funny to me. As a non-drinker, this text is very funny to me. Psalm 104, verse 15, says that God gives wine as a gift of his providence. Why? To make your heart glad. (laughs) It's in the Bible. God gives wine to make your heart glad. It's incredible to me. It's, I love this. So, so even the taste, I guess, and the flavor, I suppose, and even the physiological effects of alcohol, note, to the degree that they do not alter your ability to process or impair your judgment in any way, is a gift of God to be enjoyed. And yet, and yet, the one verse that... that, that Recommend that commends alcohol as a gift of God is far outweighed by the dozens and dozens of texts that give sober warnings about the dangers of drunkenness. In fact, drunkenness is so serious that twice Paul included in a list of sins that if not repented of and crucified and killed will exclude you from the kingdom of God. In other words, some people go to hell with a wine bottle in their hands. Which explains exactly why this qualification is on the list for elders, doesn't it? It's on the list for elders because A, drunkenness is an easy black hole of sin to fall into, and once people fall into it, if they ever do, it becomes, note my word here, almost impossible to climb out of. Almost. And yet by the time they do, If they do, they have pretty much already destroyed their lives and the lives of others around them. And I know you know that because you've seen it. I mean, currently, I I right now know a man who is under church discipline for drunkenness. 
And he is this close. I mean, this close. He is on the brink of losing everything, including his entire family for drunkenness. And it all began five years ago with a bottle of wine to heal the pain, to to take care of the pain after surgery. But B, that's A, B, the target is on the list because elders work with people, right? And sometimes very uh, uh, people with deep troubles and complicated issues in their lives. And, And if an elder has a drinking problem, he will be largely, if not totally ineffective for his ministry. You see, a pastor needs 100% functionality of his mind. Pastoral ministry is a thinking man's game. Elders are surgeons of the soul who need profound precision with the sword of the spirit to shepherd the sheep and feed the flock and lead the church behind enemy lines. See, that's why it's on the list. And yet, if you think about it, booze ain't really the issue. You see, see, if you think about it, drunkenness is just one out of a thousand different manifestations of the deeper heart issue that actually has Paul concerned. Drunkenness is just the most obvious one. You see, the issue, understand this, the issue is not so much the object to which one is enslaved, so much as it is the deeper heart issue that allows one to be enslaved. That is what Paul is after. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, you name it. It could be drugs, it could be pornography, food, video games, entertainment, shopping, money, homosexuality, work, exercise, you name it, by whatever a person is dominated, that is the thing to which they are willingly enslaved and for which they will sacrifice everything, even to their own destruction. See, the issue, the issue that Paul is really after here, surprise, surprise, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. And and put it more precisely, it is self-idolatry. Or to put it even more precisely, what Paul is describing, get this now, what Paul is describing is an idolatrous, self-indulgent pursuit of one's private pleasures at the expense or exclusion of everybody else. That's the root. That's the Christ-defaming root behind drunkenness, or what the world calls addiction. It is the willing abandonment of all self-control that either does not consider or it does not care the destruction that their idolatry brings either upon themselves or upon anybody else. Is that not the issue that's going on? And is that not exactly what we see with Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning? That's exactly what we see. It's exactly what we see. The whole future human race hung in the balance. The whole future human race could have gone to hell and and they they didn't give a rip about any of that. The only thing that mattered in that moment was the prize dangling on the tree and they were going to have that prize even if it meant their own destruction and the destruction of trillions of people. They didn't care. See, that's what Paul is after. 
Which makes me want to ask you, Christ community, we've got to be honest, we've got to be real, we've got to do internal heart surgery. Elders, future elders, and everybody else, do you see anything in your life that remotely resembles what Paul is talking about here? I mean, maybe it's not getting drunk necessarily, but it might be something that's beginning to have a python grip on your soul and you have no idea how you are going to claw your way out of it. I just want you to know. I just want you to know I have a heart just like you, which means, which means I know the depths to which the human heart can go. And I just want you to know if you have anything like that going on in your life, please know in Christ and in Christ alone, there is hope for you. There is hope for you. You know why? Because... Alcoholics Anonymous, as you know, they have their 12-step program, right? Well, the Son of God has a one-step solution. A one-step solution to overcoming slavery to sin, or what some people call addiction. And here's the solution. You ready? Here here is the one-step solution by the Son of God. Are you ready? The solution is His death in your place. That's it. That's it. His wrath-bearing, sin-conquering death by which you have access to everything that the Father predestined for you, including slavery, freedom from the slavery of sin itself. I want you to listen very carefully to Galatians 2.20. Listen very carefully. You know the text well. I want you to hear it again. Don't miss what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice how he defines himself. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And what I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who delivered himself for me. Do you hear what he says? When you put your faith in Christ, the old you died and what you got instead was not a new improved version of you, but what you got instead was Christ in you. Do you hear the difference? You see, in Christ, you don't just turn over a new leaf or get a new lease on life. No, you get a new heart and you get a new master who not only tells you what to do, but he lives in you and he provides the power for you to do the things that he demands of you. That is new covenant. That is gold. Never ever forget what I'm about to tell you. The finished work of Christ is the one-stop shop that not only helps us dodge the bullet of hell, but also provides the power we need to triumph over the suicidal pleasures of sin. Target number four. Target number four on the list, an elder must not be aggressive. An elder must not be aggressive. Look again at verse seven. Look what Paul says. He says, it's necessary the overseer to be blameless as a steward of God. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard. Here it is. An elder must not be quarrelsome. 
quarrelsome, or maybe your version says violent. And that term, that Greek term, actually comes from the word meaning to strike or to throw a punch. Literally what this is, this is the, this is the ancient Greek word for a bully, one who settles a matter with fists and intimidation. And you see, this kind of person that Paul's describing, and you can just imagine the type, and hopefully not, but maybe you are the type. What he's describing here is a person who's aggressive, who's confrontational, who's contentious, who's argumentative. This kind of person that Paul's describing, this is not a person who, who wins agreements or, or wins disagreements with precise reason and cool logic, but rather by anger and intimidation. This kind of person is inflexible, unbending, and they absolutely love control. Do you know anyone in your life like that? Maybe are you someone like that? This kind of person that Paul is describing is harsh, abrasive, and they will only tolerate the eager, open-armed embrace of all of their ideas, and they will not be disagreed with or questioned. See what this is? This, this is the eggshells kind of person. The walking minefield that you dare not cross and you dare not disagree with. And, and the world, I think, is very interesting. The replacement, kind of sanitized words that we come up for people like this, such as uh, touchy, grouchy, prickly, or cantankerous. The biblical word is this word. It's, it's this word. This person, maybe they yell, maybe they argue, maybe they interrupt, maybe they're super defensive, maybe they go so far as to slam doors and punch walls and hang up phones and use all sorts of intimidation and manipulation to get their way. That is what Paul is after. And not only should a pastor be this way, no one should be this way. And yet this, this, this raises the question, right? What is the Christ-defaming root of this issue? What is the Christ-defaming root of being violent or quarrelsome or contentious or harsh or abrasive? What is the Christ-defaming root of this issue? And, and it's not hard to see a violent person, an aggressive person, get this now, is way, way too utterly persuaded of their own importance. That's the issue. They're way too persuaded of their own importance. This person with their, their angry outburst and their hypercritical spirit, they are driven by unbending personal ambitions that things are just going to go the way they want them to go. And if they do not go the way they want them to go, then you are going to pay the price. Bottom line, they love control because deep down they are afraid. They're cowards afraid of losing the things that are most precious to them. So this raises the question. I'm not assuming, I'm just asking. Elders, future elders, and everybody else, do you see anything remotely similar to this in your life? Are you a hostile, abrasive, contentious, quarrelsome, cantankerous person? Are you the eggshells kind of person? Do you love to have control? Which means what I'm asking you is, are you utterly way too persuaded of your own importance? Because I just want you to know that there is a cure for all of that. 
There is a Christ-exalting cure for being harsh and inflammatory and explosive and, and violent and hostile and contentious. There is a Christ-exalting cure for all of that. And I just want you to know that the cure for all of that is not medication or therapy. The, the solution to that, the cure to that, get this now, is to be staggered by who you are in Christ. That's the solution. And I love how anticlimactic these, these solutions sound, right? I mean, it's like you're waiting for something really big and profound, and oh, it's that kind of thing. Well, I already knew that. That's what you needed to know. You have the answer. The solution to overcoming this issue is being staggered by who you are in Christ. You see, the problem, the problem with angry, violent people is that they have too much personal skin in the game. They have, they have too many personal dogs in the fight. See, everything is about them and their agenda and their plans and their priorities and their reputation and what people perceive of them. And it's all about their achievements and their accomplishments, which means the cure is to remember and to rehearse all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished, which defines you. For instance, these are all verses from the Bible. You are justified in Christ. You are dead to sin in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. God always leads us to triumph in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. You are sons and daughters of the living God through faith in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You have been chosen and predestined in Christ. You have been raised up with Christ. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ. What is my point? My point is, when all that Christ is, listen very carefully, when all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished becomes more important to you than you are to you, then you will stop trying to make everything about you. That's the solution. Which brings us finally to target number five. Target number five, an elder must not be avaricious. Sorry, not a great word. Started with an A. I had to keep with the flow here. An elder must not be avaricious, which is just a fancy schmancy word for greed. Look at the end of verse seven. Paul says it is necessary the overseer to be blameless as a steward of God, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not quarrelsome. And here it is, literally, he must not be greedy for shameful gain. Which means, in a very real sense, we're talking about money. And here's what's so ironic to me about money, is that all it is, is just little scraps of paper and tiny pieces of metal, right? That's all it is. In fact, if you think about it, by itself, it's actually really worthless. It's hardly worth anything. It's just a symbol of value. And yet, those small pieces of paper, scraps of paper, and tiny pieces of metal hold a curious and terrifying power over the human soul, don't they? Maybe even over your soul. 
You see, money has this reverse kryptonite effect where it does not weaken, but strengthen the heart's desire for more and more and more. And the more you feed the desire for greed, the more ravenous of a monster your heart becomes. You see, like a black hole in space, the love of money consumes its victims, sucks them in and crushes them into non-existence. You see, make no mistake, our appetite, our appetite for self-destruction is never more evident than when it comes to greed and the love of money. Now, again, we've got to be clear here. We've got to qualify this. Uh, Money in and of itself is not inherently sinful, is it? But it is inherently lethal if you use it incorrectly. If you have a wallet in your pocket, you are sitting on a time bomb and your heart is the detonator. And it's interesting, the the term that Paul uses here is actually two Greek terms kind of mashed together here. There's aiskras, meaning shameful, kerdas, meaning gain, aiskrakerdas, shameful gain. And what the term actually describes, get this, is financial or material gain obtained in such a way that if it was exposed to the public, the things that are actually going on behind the surface would actually bring great shame and devastation to your life. And you've heard the stories, right? Corporations and all sorts of things. There's just all sorts of scandal and corruption going on beneath. That's, that is aiskrakerdes. And of course, the, the, the most obvious example are the health, wealth, prosperity, slime balls that you see on TV who only exist to bilk people out of money. Of course, Paul is including those kinds of things, but there are other subtle more forms of this. I heard of a guy who worked for a large company that uh, uh, sent out distribution trucks and they had their own gas pump on site and he would show up on Saturdays when no one was around and he would fill up large containers full of gasoline and sell it off the side, off, off the books for his own personal game. gain. That dude is in jail right now. That kind of stuff. See, but here's the thing though. Um, you know, mon- money is not really ultimately the issue for Paul, is it? It's not. You see, money is just the most obvious example. There are all sorts of forms and and manifestations and, and flavors and varieties that greed can take. It could be recognition, greed for recognition. It could be greed for applause. It could be greed for power and popularity and love of control. And, and I think if in the pastoral ministry, if a guy is a particularly good looking or, or charming guy, so I'm not including myself here, sometimes, sometimes the greed is for access to women and sex. Some men are attracted to pastoral ministry because it's an intellectually gratifying way to earn a living. Some men are lazy and slothful and they know that churches typically have terrible accountability and so they, they pursue ministry as a way, as a uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, a, a slothful way to, uh, you know, easy, leisurely way to make a living. There's all sorts of manifestations of what greed can look like. But, but... Since lust for money is the most obvious manifestation of greed, I just want to ask you, um, do you have this in your life? Do you have any greed or love of money in your life? And, And the question is, how would you know? How would you know if you did love money, how would you know? Consumer debt? Maybe. Maybe. No one's critiquing, but maybe. 
Would it be, is greed spending what you don't really have on things you can't really afford to give the impression that you are someone other than who you really are? Probably. Is greed being stingy and tight-fisted, especially in, in generous sacrificial giving to the church and the advance of the Great Commission? Very likely. Is greed shopping or buying something new as a typical way to deal with stress and anxiety and discouragement or disappointment? Very likely. Is greed unwilling to do anything in church ministry unless you're reimbursed or compensated? Quite possibly. Is greed when you resent people who have more than you? That very well could be. Is greed when no matter how much you have, you secretly feel and complain that it's never enough? Quite possibly. Or is greed when you are willing to sin or bend the rules to get more of it? That's exactly what it is. All of that, all of that is textbook, exhibit A, hand in the cookie jar evidence of greed and the love of money. And so the question is, have you been infected by the virus of greed. Which, again, brings us to the cure. The Christ-exalting cure for greed. Because if, if, if you think about the Christ-defaming root of greed, of course it's idolatry. The root of greed, of course it's idolatry. In fact, it's even worse than that. Greed is what I call two-way idolatry. It's a sword that cuts both ways. You see, what it is, is greed is at the same time a fixation and a fascination. You see, greed in all of its various forms is a fixation on your own ravenous appetite for something other than God, and it is a fascination with something that you find more beautiful and satisfying than God. Or to put it another way, in a very crass way, greed is idolatry, cannibalism. One false god consuming other false gods. It is the god, the false god of your appetite consuming, gorging itself on other little false gods that will never satisfy the soul. And so what this does is it makes the Christ exalting cure for greed deliciously obvious, doesn't it? I close with this. I just want you to know, Christ community, that the best news in the world when it comes to greed is that Jesus Christ is both stronger than your cravings and he satisfies infinitely more than the other things that you crave. It's, it's a total win. You see, you have to understand, Christ doesn't say no to joy and satisfaction. He only says no to the things that get in the way of true joy and satisfaction, which are found only in him. So if you want to strangle and suffocate the root of greed, all you need to do is rehearse and remember and recite verses like these. And as I read these verses, as I close with this, I just want you to listen very carefully for the terms riches and treasure and pleasure. Are you ready? This is how you fight the root of greed. Here we go. Psalm 16, 11. You will make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Mark 10, 21. One thing you still lack, rich young ruler. Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure, treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Ephesians 1.18, I am praying that you would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 2.7-2.8, God will display in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And last but not least, Matthew 13.44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You see, that is the cure. That is how you win. You show greed who's boss by reminding your soul that true treasure and satisfaction is not found in scraps of paper or pieces of metal, but it's found in everything that Christ accomplished for bankrupt sinners like you and me. That is the cure. That is the treasure. That is how you win. So Christ community, you need to know life is war. And if you want victory, you're going to have to be violent. The more savage you could be with the sin in your souls, the more sanctified you will become. And the more sanctified you become, the more you put Christ on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our hearts are very clearly idol-making factories. And Lord, we struggle. We struggle in this life. We, we want to be changed. We want to be different. We want to grow and we struggle, Lord. So we come to you for encouragement. And we're so thankful that your word offers that encouragement. Your word, O oh Lord, it not only gives us commands to obey, but Christ, you give us the very power to obey them. Lord, we're so grateful that it's not a lost cause. We don't have to crash and burn. We can be different. We can be changed. And yet change is so hard. Change is so excruciating. Change is so difficult. And so I pray that you would give great encouragement to this flock. Give them great hope in you. May they be people who moment by moment, second by second, cling to you, Christ, for your infinite power and resources to do all that you command them to do. Give them great hope, O Lord, that they can be changed and they will be changed if they truly belong to you. O Lord, help them to see that it's not hopeless, that their lives can be used to make an impact for eternity. Thank you for this precious flock and just look forward to how you were going to use them in the Great Commission always and only for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.